not being too afraid to to mess up. I mean, that that's I guess is what it comes down to. Like, um, no, knowing that the people around you are not waiting for you to screw up. They're they're just there to help, and they and they are on your your team and on your side. Um, and, and it's not like that nightmare where you're taking a test and don't know any of the answers. It's it's like you have the people around you and they have the answers and, and it's okay to ask them and it's okay to uh, tell them what you need and let them use their expertise to help you get there. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Dan Erickson, who is a TV writer and producer creator of Severance for Apple TV, and in September 2022, you were named to the Time 100 Next List, which features 100 emerging leaders from around the world who are shaping the future and defining the next generation of leadership. The reason I bring that up, we're going to have a lot of conversations about leadership, show running, whether it's the story and theme of the show, the story and theme of your life, work-life balance, so many different things that we're going to talk about today. But first of all, cannot express my gratitude enough for the fact that you are finally here recording this. I know for you as well, this was on my calendar today. This has been on my calendar for months in my head. So glad to finally make it a reality. This means a lot to me. Thank you. No, I'm I'm so happy too. And it's it's been uh, a bit indicative of how the process has been of, of making our second season. It's been extraordinarily busy and and we've been working really hard, but yeah, I was finally able to get a little bit of a, a break where I was like, okay, this is actually feasible now. And I'd, I'd been wanting to, to come on and talk with you for a long time. So it worked out. There was finally just a little parting of the clouds and we were able to do it. Well, I appreciate it because it would be just as easier for you to say, hey, this sounds like a great opportunity. Either not interested and I don't have the time, but you've been willing to endure the emails and the calendar links and all the other things to get here. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very uh, grateful for that. And for anybody, first of 
of all that's coming to this interview, they're like, ooh, what's severance? For the love of God, hit the pause button, stop this interview, go on Apple TV and watch the first season of the show. I have written this in print and it will now be in audio forever. And I stand by this statement. I am gonna, I'm literally gonna die on this hill. If this show continues to be as consistently good as it is in its first season, you are gonna be in the same conversation as Breaking Bad. I completely and totally believe that. No pressure, but I completely and totally believe that. That's how good the first season of your show was. I mean, that's that's insanely high praise. So I I, I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I I, I mean, I it's funny. I think we knew when we were making it that there was something special here. But, you know, the fact that it has connected with people on the level it has and, and you know, I, I, I've said this before, but I always assumed this show was going to be like five people's favorite show, you know, somewhere in the, in the world. And, you know, it's like the show that your most obnoxious friend won't shut up about. I'm like, I would love to be in that category. But the fact that it's like actually become something that people are talking about, uh, you know, on a wide level and, you know, to even be mentioned in the <laughs> company of Breaking Bad is is, is pretty incredible. So yeah, it's 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 a trip. It's been a real trip. Yeah, and I want to I want to get into a little bit later in the show some of my theories about why it hit the way that it did based on the themes, this idea of work-life balance is clearly why I gravitated to it or the extreme lack thereof. And I think that had you made the show 10 years ago, I think it would have been five people's favorite shows, but because the theme hit at exactly the right time, right during or the tail end of the pandemic, just the sense of blurring of work-life balance completely disappeared. I think thematically, yeah. that's one of the reasons that it hit. But before we get uh, down that road, because we're definitely going to get there, mm -hmm. this first part is seriously just for my own personal gratification. And I think a lot of people are going to get a kick out of it. But okay. I remember watching the first few episodes and just staring at the screen and I was like, man, I wish I could have been in the room when they were pitching this. So here's my vision for the pitch. And then I want you to share the reality. Here's my vision of the pitch. All right. So you're in there, you're with the studio executives. So you guys have heard of The Office, right? Oh yeah, we love The Office. One of our favorite shows. Okay. So just imagine that it's this kind of office workplace comedy drama, but now it's set in the world of 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs> oh, okay. That's, that's really interesting, but it's like, Totally, it's still a comedy. No, 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 no. Now imagine that you add The Shining. Uh, okay, you're, you're kind of losing us. Okay, hold on a second, hold on. So the star of the show is gonna be the guy from Parks and Rec. Holy cow, you got Chris Pratt? No, 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 no. We got Adam Scott. Um, okay, so talk to us about the vision. Okay, so here's the best part. I brought somebody on board. Director, producer, EP, gonna be a, a major part of this. It's the guy that played Derek Zoolander. <laughs> hmm. Oh, wait, wait, wait. One more thing. I know you're really concerned about all this. The other director that we're going to bring in, because, I mean, come on, Zoolander can't direct all the episodes. We're going to bring another director that barely has any TV experience whatsoever, but has done some shorts and music videos. That's my vision for your pitch, because you look at everything on paper and you think, how did this ever come into existence? I, for months, have wanted to know what's the real story and the real pitch that got you where you are today. I mean, that's you got it word for word. That was exactly uh, what I came in with. And uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, of course, the you know, the, the real version of that pitch you just gave happened over the course of about two years you know, as these different elements fell into place. It's funny, I, I will say, like, going back to when I was taking it around town, because because it, it, it ended up on Ben Stiller's desk after being put on this publication called The Blood List, which is like a version of The Blacklist that's just for horror and sci-fi scripts. 
but but before that, I had just been taking it around it, and it was very. I don't think I used Kubrick. I used uh, Terry Gilliam mostly as mm. the sort of the model for that. Like I would usually start at Brazil and then go from there, and that was uh, partially because like the version of it that I had then, and and I think you can actually find the script online. I don't know if it's supposed to be there, but it's I'm there. glad you brought that up because I actually <laughs> discovered it today, and we're going to talk more about the version that was dated December 13th of 2014. But I'm going to stick a pin in that for a second. Awesome. Well, that well, well, yeah. All, all that is to say that the original version was a little bit more Terry Gilliam and a little less, you know, 2001. And Ben, over the course of it, really grounded it more. I think that the original version. I had was a lot, it was more heightened, dare I say, sillier. And so I will say the one part of your pitch that I would have to call inaccurate was anybody objecting on any level to, to Ben's involvement or, or even questioning, uh, because by that time, by the time we were doing it, he had already done uh, Escape at Danamora. And so it was like, everybody we talked to was like, oh, it's like they had already had the Zoolander can direct a, a drama mm-hmm. really well, Revelation. So I didn't have to go through that. Although I'm sure Ben did, early, you know, earlier on. Yeah, and that's that's a whole other journey that I'm just fascinated by because I would imagine that at some point Ben had people saying, "Well, we know who you are clearly, and you're very successful, but directing and producing a drama, like at any level, yeah. that's a barrier that somebody has to overcome." Which is, well, I believe I can do it, but I haven't proven that I can do it. Ben Stiller or otherwise, that's hard for anybody to overcome that. Which I would guess is another part of your journey that I definitely want to get to as well. But the heart of all of this for me, where I want to start, is the kernel of the idea. And the reason that I bring this up, and the thing that's really important for me as a theme of today's conversation, is sticking with your vision. Because you had an idea, you had a kernel, you had a vision, years and years of trying to get it made. And I know that it wasn't a very easy road and it didn't just come all naturally for you to become a quote unquote overnight success. What was the kernel of this? Where did it begin? Well, it began at the first job that I had when I first moved to Los Angeles, which I have sort of colloquially colloquially called the door factory uh, when I've talked about it in the past, but it, it wasn't really a door factory. It was a company that, that you know, they, they make and they ship and they repair doors and gates throughout the greater Los Angeles area. And I, I was coming from grad school. I had just like so much negative money and, you know, couldn't afford a car. So I took the bus out to this interview and it was the first Craigslist interview I could find. And it was a horrible, horrible, horrible job. I mean, I still appreciate them for giving it to me at the time. And, you know, the people for the most part were very nice, but it was like, I was in this like little windowless office that felt like it was out of like being John Malkovich or something. And it was just this, you know, horrible fluorescent, like they never fixed the blinking light above me. And there would be like, there was one window out onto the production floor and I would see like door parts moving by. And it was just, yeah, I was just, it was eating my soul little by little. And it was, it was one day that I walked in and I I just like caught myself having like what felt like a very casual thought, which is like, what if there was a way to just like turn off the next eight hours? Like, so I'm doing it. I'm there and I'm doing the work, but I don't have to consciously, it would feel like just jumping ahead. And then literally it was like within about 10 seconds of having that thought, the show was mostly formed, like in terms of at least the concept where it was like one thing led to naturally to another thing, which is like, well, yeah, but then what about that version of me? like, does his mind reset every day? And I was like, no, cause he would need to remember the stuff he had learned at work. So it would have to be like a totally just separate version of me 
that lives there all the time and retains memories there. And then it was like, oh my God, but that guy would be in hell. Like that would be a nightmare. And so, and that morning I got yelled at by my boss because I was being a terrible employee. I was like sitting there just like furiously writing down notes about this idea while there were hinges to be cataloged. Yeah, it really was just kind of born out of an actual, you know, a moment of corporate misery where I was just like, I would rather not experience the next eight hours of my life, which is the other side of it that I wanted to interrogate was like, that's a pretty messed up thing to catch yourself wishing for. It's like, I wish I had less of my day, you know, <laughs> when we have limited time here on earth and you're literally wishing for less of it, like there's something wrong. So all of those are, th- it was like, again, within about half an hour of the idea. It was like all these themes were there. And I was just like, this is, as a writer, you you sort of hope that you'll, you know, happen to stumble upon an idea like that, where you're like, wait, this is simple-ish, but it makes sense. And it's it's something that feels like, it's like, has anyone done this before? And I looked into it and no one had, so it worked out. From that point, I think there are so many writers, people that do creative work, whether it's artists, painters, musicians, so many people have kernels of ideas. They have entire journals of ideas. I could do this. I could write that. I could make this. They sit in a journal and they never get made. So from the point that you had this kernel of an idea and you're pouring it all out onto the page, and I love this vision of you should be cataloging hinges. I'm already seeing the parallels between your real life and the show, which we're going to talk about, have not ended from that point. Um, But from kernel of idea to I'm actually going to follow through with this and I'm going to write it and I'm going to get it out into the world. Mm-hmm. What's how, how do we fill that giant gap? Because so many people have ideas. Very few have Emmy-nominated shows from Apple. Right. It was in terms of like actually writing it, that was something that I had gotten better at just through practice because I, I, I was, um, I mean, like I said, I, did, I went to grad school uh, for two years before this. And when I was younger, I would hit a lot of the struggles that that a lot of people do, which is, which is, yeah, like you start something. I was really good at getting to like page 30 because I loved setup. I was like, I was like, okay, we're setting up the world. It's cool. It's, but then it's like, you hit a point where you're like, well, what next? And the executive function and then the head starts to get compromised and it, because there's just infinite options, you know, and it, and it just becomes like, what is the shape of this? And, and so I would stop and I would stop after 30 pages. And for me, I didn't get good like, I don't think I finished a full-length screenplay until I was in grad school and somebody forced me to. So, you know, I, I had gotten used to getting over that initial hump of like, what the hell is this even? And just pick a direction and go with it. Yeah, I don't know. I had had a lot of other in and after grad school. I had written a couple of features, but there was just something about this idea that felt like it worked better than any of those. It, it was something that, again, was sort of simultaneously interesting and new, but also pretty simple and and sort of spoke to something that I thought was going to be really universal. It's like we all have parts of ourselves or parts of our lives that we wish we couldn't experience or think about. And so, yeah, uh, it came pretty quickly. Like a first draft came pretty quickly after I had the initial idea. I would say I had a first draft within, you know, a couple of weeks, which is pretty fast for me. But again, it was very different from what it ended up being. So we go from the point where you had the kernel of the idea relatively effortless for you to put it down in a couple of weeks. Cause like you said, it was something that was relatively simple to execute as far as the concept is concerned, which looking at it now, I can't imagine thinking about any of this as simple cause it's such a complex story. But I think that again, kind of answering the question, why do we think it hits so well? Number one, you can explain this in a single sentence, right? 
imagine if you severed your brain and you could literally separate work from life and have total work-life balance or lack thereof. You get that in a single sentence. I can't really think of anything that's like it, but thematically it's like, man, how much does that resonate right now? And that's interesting. But what I want to get into that I think is even more interesting, and I want to learn more about the process of I've got the script and all the challenges or stumbling blocks or rejection that may have been on your path. And maybe it was just super simple to get made. I don't know. I want to learn more about it. But coupled with just walking through the steps and all the potential failure and rejection along the way, what I found is a common theme with every artist and creator that I have talked to is that the reason they didn't give up is there is a deeper emotional resonance and purpose or calling behind the story that they wanted to tell versus, well, it seems like a good opportunity to get something made. Because if that's all you've got is, well, that could be my calling card or this is fun and exciting, you're going to give up. So I'd like to know first just kind of what were all the major benchmarks to get it made and all of the failures along the way and what kept you going through all of those failures and rejections? Yeah, well, I mean, there was there was definitely no shortage of failures. There, there were a couple times I remember having the thought like, oh, that's a bummer. I, I would have been happy to keep doing that for you know, 10 more years or whatever it was because I thought it was dead in the water. I had a manager at the time. I didn't yet have my agents, but I had a manager at a time, a guy named Ben Blake, who's awesome. And he was taking it around and, you know, working on it with me, sort of giving me feedback. And he was taking it around to different places. And I would say I had met with like at least 10 different places who were like interested and each one colored it a little bit. And like for some of them, I actually would like work with their their executives or the producers there and, and they'd be like, okay, like we like this, but it's way too silly. Like you can't have him get pooped out of the top of the ceiling onto the table at the beginning, which was the original opening of the show. So I'd be like, okay, all right. Like I'll, and, and I would go and, and they, they asked me, those were the first people to ask me a lot of the bigger questions that I ultimately was going to have to figure out about like, well, what is actually going on? Like, what is the actual, you know, we may not know it until the end of the last season or, or even after that, but, but like, what is the actual purpose of this company? What's really going on? And, and so they, they got me thinking about the bigger questions. And so I created sort of a Bible for the show that I, I would go through with them in tandem with the pilot script and just sort of got into like the bigger themes and where it's all going and the characters and everything. There was one really big place that I was hoping was going to do it. And that fell through. And, and that I remember at the time kind of felt to me like, okay, this is maybe time to close the book on this project. But it was, it, it did stick with me in a way that no other script has, because I just, I kept, there was something very personal about it. I mean, I had just gone through like a very, a very bad breakup at the time. I remember that I wrote it. And so this idea that, you know, the the work, putting part of yourself in an office forever, it's like, yes, that's horrible and cruel, but in a way you're also protecting a piece of yourself from the pain of life, just from the, the pain of the outside that we all go through and we all experience from any loss. And, you know, there, there's a part of you that wants to hide from that. And, I, and so it was like that scene of Mark crying in his car, you know, was always in the script. And, you know, just this idea of like, okay, now I'm going to go to a place where I don't have to feel this. That was something that that was very personal to me and, and an emotional experience to write because of, you know, what I had been going through at the time. It wasn't something I could just put down. It wasn't something I could just like stop working on. And I think that's why I persisted in continuing to tweak it with each stage with every new person I met. And that got it to the point of being nominated for the blood list. And that was the uh, 
I, I honestly don't know who exactly nominated it, but my understanding is like, if there's like a production company that almost wants to do something or, or a script that's just being kicked around, but they're like, well, it's not quite for us, but it's really good that they can nominate it for this publication. I might be getting that totally wrong. I think that's how it works. But yeah, uh, I'm definitely not the person to ask because that is not my world at all. But th there are so many things that I want to dig into here now, and I'm wishing I had scheduled about four hours instead of 90 minutes. But when it comes to this process of going around from studio to studio, production company to production company, you said you had at least one pretty major rejection where you're like, eh, you know, it looks like maybe this isn't going to be made. Did you find that for the most part, people were actually very enthusiastic or was it more kind of like the fictional pitch that I created where people are like, uh, I don't ever see how we're actually going to make this. It's really cool. But uh, what were kind of the common themes in all of the rejections? I think that what a lot of people wanted to do was tamp down the weirdness for sure. So there was a lot of, and again, I'm not necessarily like not in a way that was wrong necessarily because we did end up tamping down some of the weirdness in terms of like, again, the people being born out of orifices and ceilings and such. But then there were others who were like, you know, it's too, not only do we not want people being born out of ceilings, but we don't want, it's like, why are they talking a little weird? Like, you know, this could be a, a big thriller, like, you know, whatever other show, you know, this, this, this could be some, I, I forget what people compared it to, but it, but there were people who were like, oh, it's like this, you know, insert network show that kind of has like a memory element to it. You know, I was just always like, well, yeah, like I, I would have accepted that at that point because I just wanted to be working, but I was like, that's not what this is. Like this is, it was always something that was like weird and sad and bittersweet and like ultimately kind of warm. I was like, I want something that feels where we take you into such an alien, weird place, but then we're there for you on the other side with this sort of human story and a tone that that is weird yet recognizable. Again, I assumed I was going to have to compromise that. And I was, you know, I was ready to cash the check. But that's why it's so fortunate that it ultimately ended up with somebody who fell in love with the weirdness. Everything was modulated as we went along. But when it finally did get to Ben Stiller, he was the one who, who was the first one to be like, there's something so strange here and we have to protect it because people are going to try to kill it. I'm so glad that you brought that up, specifically the tone, because to me, the tone is one of the main characters of the entire show and the reason that it works so well. And the reason that I want to bring that up, and I also want to go back to where you had mentioned the scene of Mark crying in his car has always been there. That to me is the kernel and the heart of what this entire show is. You think it's about this high concept, sci-fi, brain science, et cetera, et cetera. Those are just pieces that kind of put the world together. But Mark sitting in his car and crying crying about how much he hates his job, there isn't a person on the planet that hasn't had that moment. And again, because of the timing of the pandemic and everything going on with the lack of work-life balance in our lives, that to me is what the show is and the reason that I resonated with it so much. But what I really discovered today, and I wish that I had discovered it sooner, but discovering the version of the script from 2014, what it brought up is an entirely new discussion that I wasn't even thinking about having. The story is totally different. I mean, it's the, the kernel of it. The tone is totally there. The style of dialogue spot on the characters are who they are. But just one very small example, 
Helly and Mark totally switched. Mark right. is the one right. on the table. I'm like, holy cow. And then as far as the plot is concerned, by the middle of it, I'm like, I'm totally lost in how this even connects to the version that I've seen on the show. But it felt like the exact same show. And that feeling to me is what's so hard to get on paper. And that was the thing that I feel that survived from years and years ago through all the notes and all the suggestions. There was something too that was so important and I'm glad that Ben protected it. That to me is what makes it work. The plot is great, but it's not the plot points that work. And I've had this conversation with several other guests. Does character drive plot or does plot drive character? And it's pretty clear that for you, character is what led to plot and not the other way around. Yeah, I think so. And it's, I mean, those, those things are snaked vomiting its own tail out. I, I, that's an incorrect metaphor, but those things create each other in a way that Mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard to see where it all started. But yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that it's something where, you know, you start with the, the most sort of central question is who are these people that we're going to be spending our time with and ostensibly caring about what happens to them. And, you know, you you don't want to create a character who acts a certain way because you need to get to plot point X in episode nine. So you want to create a story that's authentic for them. But at the same time, sometimes you do want to get to plot point X in episode nine and you have to find a way for it to make sense. You have to find a way to it's like, well, we know where we want to get Mark. So so how can we what are the things that we can put in his path in order to get him there? So it is, it's, it's all creating itself in real time in a, in a way that's, that's weird, but to go back. Yeah. I mean, the original version of, I think it's, I haven't read it in a while, but I think it's like, it's his day. It's his first day. And it leads up to, I think him seeing the video of himself mm-hmm. and then it cuts back to like the outside and how he got the job, I think. Right. Yeah. And actually like he, the interview and there's a dead cat involved and I'm just like, I don't remember any of this. He hits Cobell's cat. I was a mon- I killed a cat in a pilot episode. I I don't know why uh, it didn't get bought sooner. <laughs> well, the to really dig into this one layer deeper, it and this is really for those that are storytellers and specifically writers. When you're at that crossroads of, well, I can compromise my character or I can compromise my plot. Clearly, you stay true to character and you have to figure out plot that matches it. And I feel that it's a mistake to often look at it the other way around where, no, this has to be the plot. So let's compromise the character, their beliefs, their values, their motivations, because we have to get from A to B. And that's to me where most stories fall apart. But what's really interesting to me, and I didn't even realize why I gravitated so much to the show the first time, upon watching it a second time, and it's frankly the reason you and I are here today, is I wrote this really in-depth article, not about here's a review of it, but here's the the deeper meaning, but also why it's really, really scary, because we're a lot closer to this being our reality than it being science fiction. But it starts with the first line, who are you? And you said the journey of the entire show is these characters asking the questions, who am I? And universally, that's kind of the question that we're all asking ourselves. Who the hell am I in real life? And I think the reason that, again, it's so universal amidst such a cool sci-fi, interesting concept, there is no more universal theme in stories than who am I? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is central. I mean, there's definitely a reason that's the first line of the of the show. And uh, it reappears throughout the show. There's certain points where a character will say that. And, you know, that's always something to to pay attention to because, you know, although it is funny, it happens by accident too, because just in writing the, in the course of writing nine episodes of TV, people say, who are you? Like, it's not that uncommon a phrase. So there are a few times where I would like write it by accident 
And someone would be like, oh, that's interesting. You put in a who are you? And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I didn't mean to. But yes, I mean, it is very much the, the concept sort of begs the question of like, what makes us who we are? Is it something that is intrinsic to us? Or, or are we, you know, are we a, an amalgamation of our memories and experiences? You know, and it just gets back to this very age old nature versus nurture thing. It's one of the most interesting questions to ask ourselves that we ask constantly about all the all the characters is like how much are they the same versus different people and and it's different for different characters you know it's it's like you see mark and you see the same traits expressed differently in a in a way and you know he feels like he's younger on the inside and and he feels like he's not as weighed down and and he's maybe more optimistic at first but then in a way what we're seeing it on the inside is a bunch of children growing up and sort of having an experience that propels them into kind of an adulthood. It's my favorite part of the show, I think, is asking ourselves, like, what is it that binds the two versions of Mark together? What are the traits that are essential that we can't compromise that will always be there with him on either side because they truly are part of who he is? And and by the way, we don't have an answer. Like we haven't figured out nature versus nurture on this show, but it's just a constant. The question is there. It's an engine that's always propelling us to the next question. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, and I think that this idea of the compromise between who am I at work, who am I outside of work, we're pretty aware of the fact that we have separation between the two. But my argument that I make in the article, and I think the argument of the show as well, is that 
this is kind of a reflection of the way it is in real life and how hard it is to compartmentalize. Well, I'm a dad right now and I'm home and I'm present with my family versus I'm an editor or I'm a writer or I'm a showrunner. The lines have blurred so much that short of there actually being this severance procedure of which I know that you've talked about how we're actually not that far away from it in real life. But frankly, I don't think we need the medical procedure to kind of be in a position where our real lives are a form of severance. I'm assuming that's an intentional theme of the show. Very much so, very much so, yeah. And and that was a big part of it, was just clocking how different I am in, on, on one side versus the other. Even just like you, your values shift, you know? It's it's like you can be a excellent, loving parent, you know, on, on one side. And then, you know, you, you might be somebody who has to fire people and, and put families in dire financial straits on the other side. And how do you reconcile that? And should you, you know, and is it something where, because we do create this boundary where it's like, well, that's something that I did when I was acting as an agent for this greater body, which is a company. That's not something that I even really had a choice on. So I therefore don't have to carry the moral weight of that home with me. And again, it's like, we sort of have to do that, but it's something that's worth examining because it is like, we are ultimately people. And is there a way to live in a more holistic, complete way where you feel like you're operating under the same basic set of principles or values or whatever you call it at all times. And, and you're able to live consistently as opposed to like, well, I'm going to do stuff that's, that I don't approve of or, or that I don't feel good about, but I'm, but then I'm just not going to think about it. That is sort of the human thing that we try to play with on the show. Who are you and can you become whole? Like, is it possible in this world to sort of live as a whole person? Yeah, and I think one of the fallacies in us trying to figure this out in the 21st century, the big question that I think we're all asking is how can I have more work-life balance? And I think it's a good place to start, but I think we're asking the wrong question because the line is blurred so much between work and life because of technology. And I talk about the, the cult of productivity, and I know that that's a big theme in your show as well. But I don't think there is a version of work-life balance that we're working towards anymore. And as you said, it's more finding an alignment of consistent values. And yeah, you might change in some respect between who you are at work and who you are at home, but ultimately you maintain the same general core values. And what I've always talked about, I'm cur just curious on your perspective, because I've been trying to figure out what do we call it instead? What I teach my students is how to develop more work-life presence. When you're at work, you're at work. When you're at home, you're at home. And it's this idea of if, if you're at the dinner table every night, but while you're at the dinner table, you're answering emails and Slack messages, you're not at the dinner table. But if you clock the hours, you've got balance, but you don't have presence. And I, I don't think we can have balance anymore. And frankly, balance bores the hell out of me. So I think it's uh -huh. all about how do we have more work-life presence where I would guess for you, and this is where we're going to talk about the blurring lines between the show and what your life has become. There's just that period of time where you're in it, you're making the show, you're doing what you need to do to make it the best it can be, but then you can separate yourself and be a good friend or a good partner or a good dad or whatever it might be. So I'm curious, just your thoughts as somebody that is making a show about work-life balance, do you even think it's possible for us to achieve work-life balance given the way the world has changed so much in the last 20 years? Yeah, it's it's not easy, I'll tell you that. I mean, as 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 I'm sure we all, everybody listening knows, I think we forget sometimes how new all of this technology is and how new the idea is because you start to feel like it's been that way forever, but like how new of a notion it is that somebody can text you and they know you saw it. I mean, I mean, it's so rare that we're away from our phones. It's like, they're going to assume you saw it. No one is obligated to respond to a text, but like, you feel like you are. 
that's there's the spikes in anxiety and depression and all this stuff. And, and I think we just forget that like, you know, 10 or 20 or whatever it is years ago, like it wasn't like that. You, you know, it's it's that thing of going to a restaurant without your phone or leaving it at home or forgetting it. And, and suddenly it's like you're noticing the space in a way that you didn't before. And, and I think that we, we do underestimate how much it's affected our psyche and how new it is and how we still don't even understand all, all the effects of it as much. But yeah, I, I agree. And, and like presence is something that I like really strive for in my life because I do feel like there was like this, some slow thing that happened sometimes since I was a kid where it's like, sometimes I don't feel like I'm really in the world. I don't know how to describe it, except like, I don't feel like I'm sensorily experiencing a room or a street or a forest in the way that I could when I was a kid. It's 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 something intangible that you maybe lose as you get older. And so, and I think part of that is the fact that we're so unable to separate from being somewhere else. It's like, you always have to be thinking of the next thing. And so you you can't be in the present. I'm sure I'm saying things that, <laughs> that you know, uh, you've, you've probably gone over a lot, but, but it's something that I'm, as we talk through it in the show, I'm also recognizing these questions and, and these challenges in my own life. And it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to try to be telling that story while simultaneously living it. And I, I love that you shared your own personal example of this, because the, the best way that I can describe it, and you tell me if this kind of hits on what you're talking about, because I've, I've done a deep dive for years and years, understanding depression, anxiety, ADHD, I've got like the perfect cocktail of all of them, as many uh, creatives do, right? And I, the, yeah, I got, I got a pretty, uh, I got a pretty spicy little cocktail myself. What, well, what you find is that that's not an exception. That's the rule with highly creative people, especially those that become very successful. The ones that do, usually they have all those traits. They just learn how to, how, how to harness them as a superpower instead of kryptonite, right? And you being so hyper obsessed with this one idea and you can't get it out of your head eventually leads to you being the showrunner of it. Whereas somebody that doesn't have some of those traits, whether good or bad, might not have landed there. But the part of this that is so interesting to me is when you shared that sometimes I feel like I'm not actually experiencing the world. And I want to give you my interpretation or my own personal experience, because I bet there are other people that have this as well. Yeah. Essentially, what it feels like to me is that I'm watching a movie. I'm mm -hmm. sitting inside my head and I'm watching a movie and it's all happening in front of me. But at yeah. the end of the day, it's like, was I actually living the day or did I just watch a movie? And you, you don't remember the smells or the feelings and you don't feel like you're uh, connected or engaged to it. And that's always the best way that I've been able to explain it. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, definitely. There's just this weird like disassociation where you're like, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm getting the information. I know, I know that I'm in this room and I know that this thing is happening, but it doesn't feel like you're alive, which is a really uh, depressing way to put it. But I, I think I think that is how it feels. And that's one of the things that I've spent years learning more about is this feeling of I don't feel like I'm alive. And one of the main contributors, and it's going to be different for everybody. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a doctor. You know, I'm just a guy that's obsessed with learning all this stuff. And I like movies and TV and I make it every once in a while. Right. Um, so I just want to make that clear to a new uh, listener that this is just my friendly perspective. But a lot of that stems from imbalance of neurochemistry, lack of sleep, way too much stress, way too much cortisol, and lack of work-life balance. Whereas the more that you exercise regularly, the better you eat, the more you get consistent sleep, then you wake up and you actually feel alive and engaged with the world and you can be your creative best. Yes. 
And the reason that I say all of this is now I want to get more into the story of the blurring between work-life balance and severance and work-life balance and you trying to make severance. So here, here's the next part of the story that's so intriguing to me, kind of going back to this, this hypothetical vision in my head of how this went. You get it in front of Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller says, this is genius. I want to direct. I want to executive produce. Leave the tone. It's ex- this is amazing. We're going to make this. You go to the studio with this package and they say, oh, who's going to run it? Let me tell you all about Dan Erickson. Let's go to his IMDb Pro page, shall we? So if we scan <laughs> backwards, he got a special thanks credit on one episode of a show, Man vs. Animal. Okay. No, that's it. He's going to be our showrunner of this Apple TV show. How did this happen? Well, what's funny is that that's actually uh, I, IMDb isn't quite uh, sure on me yet. Man, that that man versus animal is another Dan Erickson. That is not me. That makes the story even funnier. So there is literally <laughs> nothing to see on IMDb, and here oh, you no, are running this immensely complicated show. And the reason it's so important to talk about this is, as you <laughs> know from your end of things as a writer and now turned producer showrunner. There is a huge shortage of experienced writer-producers becoming showrunners, and this is becoming a big issue for the Writers Guild. So I'm curious, what was the conversation where they decided, yes, not only do we love Dan Erickson as the writer, but he's going to run the show? Well, I I should say that uh, showrunner in the case of our show is a pretty relative term that has been somewhat shared amongst a couple of different people over time. At that time, they, they they were willing to take a risk on me, which which was very cool and very surprising. I wasn't sure. I, I was like, will I even be in the writer's room or will I like hand off the idea to like more capable minds or, or more experienced minds? Because, yeah, I mean, it's true. I, I had I had done basically nothing at that point, but they did. They were like, we want you in the room. We want you sort of guiding the process, but we are going to pair you with somebody else. So they paired me with a guy at the time who was named Chris Black. And it was really, really, really smart, experienced, interesting guy who also like got the tone of the show really well. He had worked on some other stuff that that was a little bit in that world of being like somewhat, uh, you, you know, genre-y and, and like weird and scary, but like funny in a way. And so he and I worked on it together, but also with Ben. I mean, Ben was very, uh, especially once he was done with work on Escape to Danamora, you know, he was very uh, close, close, was working very closely with us and crafting it from the get-go. But I did, I basically ran the room in tandem with Chris. And then, you know, once it moved into production, I was largely running it in tandem with a guy named Mark Friedman. And so at every stage of it, there was somebody there with me to sort of make sure that I didn't steer it completely off the rails. And in a lot of cases to, you know, to inject ideas that made it work where, where it wouldn't have worked otherwise. I was surprised to have the confidence of Apple, but I was also given a lot of help. Yeah, and that's a really, really smart way, I think, to approach it. Uh, years ago, I worked on a show called Burn Notice. And at mm. the time, uh, and I wasn't on it season one, I came in season four through the end of it, uh, season seven. Uh, so I wasn't there at the very beginning, uh, but the creator of that show uh, became the showrunner, Matt Nix. But mm. the first season, they did the same 
thing where they uh, paired him with kind of a, a co-showrunner just so we could understand the day-to-day of there's a big difference between I'm a writer and now I'm a writer and I'm the CEO of a company managing an entire team of being a leader. That's a pretty massive shift. And after season one, he totally took the reins and I think he did a brilliant job. But I, I know that that's a fairly common arrangement. And I think that for some people, they could see that as, well, you know, that that's a point of weakness or I'm inexperienced or people don't believe in me. But you strike me as somebody that really embraced it as a value and strengthening you as opposed to, well, you know, there must be something wrong with me if I need this help. Yeah, no, totally. I was grateful for it. I I, I didn't want to be up there without a net, you know, uh, as certainly. And I will say, like, I don't really want to be CEO, to, to, to be honest with you. And and it's it's so it's such an interesting thing that this role of showrunner, I think the reason that it can be hard to fill is it is such a weird confluence of qualities and skill sets where you don't have a ton of people who are really good at creating and crafting a, a concept and turning that into a pilot, a really interesting bonkers pilot, and people who are really good at running a production. Like that's a that Venn diagram barely touches. And so when you do find somebody who's really good at both of those things, you sort of found a unicorn. And so, you know, that that was why, you know, I was so grateful, you know, initially when they paired me with Chris, because I was it, it was like. He's he's got this mind where he can do both. He can sort of pivot between both worlds. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I don't think I'm speaking out of school here, but but I uh, I've never really been the showrunner in terms of production and liaising with all the different departments and and the line producer and the schedules to put it all together and make it work. Like I've never really stepped into that role, and I and I don't know that I will because it is like. It's just something that is such a different skill set. And, and, you know, we'll see what happens over the years. But like, for the most part, you know, my whole thing is is, is story and, and is just like, I want to make this work. And then I want to, you know, I want to do what I can to, to liaise with all the other creatives and and make sure that we're telling this, you know, telling the story the way we want to. But yeah, it's it is just a strange like showrunner is such a weird, specific role that like as we conceive of it, so few people can do like. Or, or have been proven to do effectively anyway. One of the things that impresses me about this show, but impresses me about shows like Breaking Bad and others that are really kind of in the canon of great shows, which again, we still need to see multiple seasons to make sure you're in that conversation. But I, I have a pretty high level of confidence it probably will be. But what I'm really impressed by is consistency. When you can look at any episode of a show over three seasons or five or eight, and it feels like the same show, and yeah. it's really hard to do that because there are some amazing shows that have one or two unbelievable seasons, and then they completely tank. <laughs> Dexter, sorry, something in my throat, right? Oh, I, um, I, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that was. But the point being that it's almost impossible to have that consistency over years and years. And my theory, my hypothesis, is that the two main components, and there's probably more than this, but number one is you have to be willing to know what you don't know and surround yourself with people that are really good at filling the gaps that you can't, which I feel like for you, not wanting to be the CEO, not wanting to deal with production, you're surrounded by a lot of the right people, including craftspeople, cinematographers, editors, composers. Like you just, I feel like every single beat of all the different departments is just running on all cylinders. And there has to be a willingness to leave your ego out the door and say, they're better at this stuff than I am. But then the problem is if you don't have your own consistent vision and you can't communicate it, 
Then all of a sudden you get a show done by committee where every individual department head thinks they know best, but you can steer them and say, hey, that's great. That's not my vision. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's it's balance, not to, not to go back to a buzzword because good advice can become bad advice if the wrong person hears it or you hear it at the wrong time. And, and someone, you know, I've, so many people have said like, you have to stick to your vision. Like, this is your show. You you have to fight for it. You have to defend it. And and if you know you're right about something, you have to fight for it, you know, because they'll, other people will try to water it down, which is great advice. Like, but another piece of great advice is you have to listen to those around you and, and you won't always be right. And you will meet people. You will think you're right in the moment. And then later you'll look back and be like, oh my God, they had the right impulse and I wasn't listening. Like, that's also a thing that happens. And so- those are both pieces of advice that I've gotten at different times. And it's just a matter of like, where, where is, like you said, where is, how do you do both? How do you decide what matters? How do you decide which of your ideas, you know, are, are worth fighting for and, and which ones, you know, you could be wrong on. And that's why it's hard. I think is there is no easy answer. Like, I wish I could be like, I found it. I found the line, but I, I still, yeah, I, it's still something I deal with. Like constantly I'm disagreeing with Ben on stuff or, you know, one of the other writers, it happens all the time. And, and it's always had, it happened in season one, it happens in season two. And both of us have our different math we have to do in our head of like, okay, is this worth continuing to fight for? Or is this other guy maybe, maybe onto something? And yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what you can, the way that I've broken it down and I work on a very different level where I'm working in editorial and so many decisions are already made by the time the dailies get in front of me. But if there are ideas that I want to convey or I feel a scene isn't working or a sequence isn't working, whatever it might be, the question for me is always, do I want to win the battle or do I want to win the war? And when I'm breaking that down, it's a matter of, all right, so this one training montage, let's say we're talking about Cobra Kai, I'm cutting this training montage and it absolutely has to be this song. And they're like, no, we don't like that song. Well, in the grand scheme of the entire season, I feel like there's a credit or a quota of how many times you can really die on a hill versus all right, at the end of the day, this is your vision and it's not mine. So we'll go in that direction. But there's always kind of this, well, maybe next time I can kind of interject my thoughts into it. But the buck stops with you. I realize there's Apple and there's executives, but it's different for you where I can pass it along and be like, all right, well, this is your decision and your show. So even if I don't agree with it, you're going to take the fall if it doesn't work. You're going to get all the accolades if it does. But it, yeah. it ends with you. You're the guy. This came out of your mind. So is it like, is it just based on intuition? Are you calculating it? Because this is a really tough place to live, especially as a new showrunner and writer with your first show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, all you have is your own intuition. There's there's never going to be a time where, you know, you can't pull the audience and get, there's never going to be a moment where suddenly it's like every single person would tell you this is right. So this is objectively the right thing to do. It's always just, you got to figure it out. And again, I always just try to go back to, this is actually something, I have a really good therapist. So I talk to a lot about work and she like, she's like, whenever you can, she's like, I know this is hard, but like, whenever you can try to just get back to the point of you're writing this for yourself. It's like, if I was just writing this for myself and I wasn't, you know, I didn't have to turn it in in two days and was worried about, you know, what X, Y, Z person is going to think, you know, what, what would you write? Like what, what's fun, you know? And, and sometimes I can get back to that headspace and sometimes I can't, but when I can, it, it almost always works. It's like, I always end up with something that, that it might not be what Apple or whoever like was asking for exactly, but, but I'll find something and I'll be like, 
in the journey of going through these notes, I found this thing and I think it's interesting and I think we should go for it. And usually when, when I find something that way, it works and it gets passed. But it is interesting because it is the buck does stop with me, but also it rightfully safeguards. And there are people around me who I have to get it passed to, who, who it's like, I need to make sure that these people think this is ready. And so that, that's the challenge is to not get in a headspace of trying to like think like them. It's like, just think like you. And if you do it right, then they'll like it. And I think that comes back full circle to what you said at the beginning, which is, I was writing this for five guys that were going to go on the internet and say, oh my God, did you hear this show? It's awesome. You're not trying to write it for everybody. That's why I think that it's working is it's so unique and it's so, there, there are, I'm sure, plenty of people that would watch one or two episodes and are like, what is this? This is so not for me. But as a creator, as an artist, you just have to be willing to accept that my work will attract the right people and it will totally repel all the wrong people. I have to be okay with that. You try to make it for everybody. Well, it's probably going to end up on CBS. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is it was a case of sort of getting rewarded for sticking to the vision. And, and again, I have to give Ben a lot of credit for that because he's He's obviously a, a pretty big heavyweight in the industry, and he could have very easily spent the rest of his life being one of the biggest comedy stars in the world and, and been very successful at that. But he decided that he wanted to tell interesting stories and that he was going to use the clout he's built up in the industry to protect interesting stories. And, he, you know, he was going to be the one who could tell the, net, uh, the, the network or the distributor, whomever, just like, sorry, this is how we're doing it, you know? And I, and I will say like Apple and, and fifth season have always been really good at that. Like in my experience have always been really good at, le at letting us do that. But I think a big part of it is that, you know, you have the weight of being Ben Stiller and, and he was willing to use that capital to defend this, the weirdness of this story. And I think that's the, that's the biggest X factor as to how we were able to get this made without killing it, you know, with, without killing what made it unique. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Where I want to go next is something that we've alluded to a couple of times and to me kind of ends up becoming the, the best part, I hope, of this conversation is 
you become the showrunner of this show, and all of a sudden the lines start to blur between the show and you making the show. So talk to me about some of the brand new work-life balance challenges or otherwise that you've experienced now being immersed in this world literally 24-7. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what's the Nightmare on Elm Street movie where like Freddy comes for the actors, like, like he breaks out of the movie and he comes for the like cast and crew of Nightmare on Elm Street. Like it gets really meta, I remember, at some point in the franchise. Is it Wes Craven's new Nightmare? I don't know. Anyway. It's one of them. I don't know exactly which one, but yeah, I, I definitely get the concept. There's one where it gets meta. Uh, uh, but but that's what happened to me. Like work-life balance, the problems broke out of the script and they came to eat me alive. Because it, it is like, and, and I always hesitate to sort of, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm griping, but like it completely consumed like every, once this was happening and the weight of that sort of landed on me, like, oh my God, I am getting a, an opportunity here that is a miracle and that I never thought I'd get. And I have to give this everything. Like th this is, it, what if not this am I ever going to pour my whole self into, you know, because this is the story I wanted to tell and I'm getting a chance to tell it on this huge level. And I have all these incredibly gifted people who are also like pouring everything they have into it. That's the other thing is you, you feel a sense of responsibility because of the hard work everybody else is doing. And you're like, well, I'm at, I'm at the top of this. If I'm not willing to do the same thing, what does that say? And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I sort of stopped doing a lot of the stuff I used to do. Like I was, I basically didn't date for like a couple of years. And I, you know, I had like, a, I was lucky enough to have a really good core group of friends, you know, here in LA that I would see and, the, and that I would, I would sort of get out. But it was like, I haven't been on a hike in so long. I've recently started to try to get back into healthy diet and exercise, but it was like when the show happened, I totally regressed in terms of like, I used to cook for myself fairly regularly. And I, um, I've cooked for myself maybe like three or four times in the last couple of years, because it is like, you get so in your head about it. And it's so, it's like, well, I don't have time to I can't go down to the grocery store and like spend time squeezing avocados. Like, like there's work to be done to keep my miracle alive, you know, because it, because it's such a gift that it came and you, you almost feel like the idea of living a normal life, you start to feel like is ungrateful or something. And there was, there was just mounting pressure and which didn't get better when, when the show became a success. I mean, if anything, it was the, it was the contrary where it was like once season two hit and people are, I'm sorry, season one hit and people actually started to respond to it. And it, and it was like, okay, now we have a responsibility, not just to these people working hard for us, but to these, however many, you know, many, many people who watch and love the show and have invested their time. And, and, and it does like, you know, the, like the things you say are they're, those are the little anxiety voices in my head that are just like, well, if it's not as good as season one, people are going to be really like, they're going to say that they're going to be upset and they're going to feel let down. And, and, and it's all this, all this stuff that, that builds up and builds up. And I I've only recently had to really actively try to take control over that and, and just be like, okay, I'm not going to be any good to anybody if I drop dead. So like, how do I get back to a point where I'm, I'm doing this show and I'm putting in enough time and effort and energy to make it work, but I am not letting it eat me. And I'm still, and again, like I just, sometimes I can just be present in a room and feel, you know, feel my weight on a chair and, and not be thinking about 
the the deadline that I have, you know, a day from now. Yeah. I'm, and I'm still figuring it out. I'm still not great at it, but it's, you know, it, it is, it's a vague mix of meditation and just setting time boundaries where it is like, okay, like I'm God damn it. I'm going on a date tonight and I'm not going to look at my phone or I'm just watching a movie tonight and I'm not going to look at my phone and, and, and trying to train your brain to not be catastrophizing about the thing and remembering that that stress isn't, isn't helping you. Like if you sit for two hours stressed out and do nothing, it's the same as sitting at, at peace and getting nothing done. You know, it's, you get the same amount done, but you're working on your, your health. So yeah, it's, I, I feel like it's, uh, you know, if I'm rambling, it's because I'm in the middle of figuring it out, but it's, it's uh, something that I'm trying to be very co- conscious of, especially now that it feels like this show may, may go for some time. And, and, you know, it's like, you have to find a way that's tenable to do it and still exist. Well, you found the sweet spot, my friend, because this is literally what I specialize in. And this is the problem that I help people solve all day, every day. Used to be solving my own problem, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Then it became a little bit of a side hustle. Let me see if I can help some of my editor friends through this. And now it's become this entire movement where I firmly believe that you can live a more balanced, productive, fulfilling life and have a creative career, but it has to be sustainable because like you said, you make season one and then you drop dead, what was the point, right? But the way that the industry is constructed and the expectations that are put upon us with deadlines and budgets and turnaround, right? We're losing our relationships, we're losing our health, we're losing our literal sanity for some people. And I have colleagues that have literally dropped dead at their desks because of the hours. There isn't a direct causation, the correlation is pretty clear. So that's the whole reason that I do what I do because I know how difficult this is for everybody. So essentially what I wanna do is I wanna turn this around a little bit and instead of it being, tell us about all the problems that you solved, I wanna know one that you haven't solved yet specifically related to how do I maintain both a consistent show over multiple seasons, but do it while maintaining who I am as a person, maintaining my health, because you're not gonna write great scripts if your health is in a horrible place. So right. what's the, what's kind of the conundrum for you right now where you're like, man, how do I fit this in or make this happen or create this habit? What is it that you're struggling with right now that is the separation of work and life for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the easiest thing to point to is exercise. I, I mean, it is because it because it's like, you know, I, I think that there's a, I have like a, on my notes app, I have like a little like we schedule. It's like, okay, this day it's meditation and, and jogging and this day it's, meditation and weights or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was, I was doing that for about four days and then, and then I stopped and, and it is just because I, you know, it's, it's like, it's about waking up and being like, okay, yeah, I could jog, but then I will have lost an hour or I'll have lost, you know, half an hour or or whatever, however long it takes to find my shorts and change into them and everything, you know, and it's, that's something I've not been able to crack yet in terms of doing consistently. Cool. You mind if we dig into this a little bit deeper? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. I'm curious, what did your exercise habit look like before you were making severance? It was also not the best, if I'm being totally honest with you. It's never been my, but yeah, like I had a gym membership. I would go probably three times a week and I would spend maybe an hour there. And it was like, yeah, a mix of like running on a treadmill and then doing some weight stuff. And uh, yeah, it worked. It worked okay. Aside from it working okay, 
Did you actually enjoy it? Did you look forward to it? Or was it just a thing you had to do because you were supposed to? Yeah, no, I've never really enjoyed it, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, I, the, you couldn't catch me dead going to the gym because it's just so boring and banal. And if I have to do it rather than I get to do it, I'm never going to do it. Is there anything that you've done previously, activities, whether you were a kid, right out of college, in college, something physical that you actually enjoyed that was fun that you were drawn to? Yeah. I mean, climbing, I, I think I wonder sometimes I, I went to a climbing gym like once a couple of years ago and like had a really, had a really good time with some friends, but, but yeah, that was something I used to do as a kid more like, you know, I was camp counselor and I would do the climbing wall and stuff. And that was always fun. Yeah. I mean, biking, maybe like, that's something that I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm like uh, intimidated by it because I'm like, well, where do you even bike around my neighborhood? Like I'd have to figure out, I feel like I, I don't even know how to bike the other bike bicyclists will laugh at me. Mm -hmm. So there, now we've got some imposter syndrome, right? Which factors yep. into whether you're a creative or otherwise for you, somebody that considers themselves one who exercises their cycles. Well, I'm going to look like a moron. I'm going to show up with the wrong kind of bike and the wrong tires for the trail. And they've all got their nice helmets and they're all their sponsored stuff. And I'm here in my, you know, my, yeah. my, my gray shirt and my shorts, like I'm going to look like a moron, right? So that happens to all of us. And if we break it down into small component parts, we can just figure out how to take one step at a time. No different than if you were going to write a, a new spec script, for example. You start with a kernel of an idea and you go from there. So if we're going to look at climbing versus cycling, which of those is a skill that actually excites you to get better at? Probably climbing. Because climbing is kind of fun. It's problem solving and, you know, it's, it's different. And it's the kind of thing where you can actually, rather than it being, I got to put in the miles, Mm -hmm. There's actually some variation. Yeah. Are you yeah. in the, where do you live? Like, what's your general neighborhood? I don't need to, you know, publicize your address, but are you in LA? Uh, yeah, I'm in LA. I'm in okay. LA. I'm in like Los Feliz Silver Lake area. All right. So then I don't know exactly where it is, but I know that there's a climbing gym relatively close to you. Mm -hmm. In the past, when you've done, whether it was climbing or cycling or going to the gym, did you have people that were expecting you to be there? No. No, I don't think I've ever had that. Is that something that would help you? Not everybody needs it, but I feel like for most people having that accountability in that group and somebody's waiting for you to show up, that's a pretty determining factor about whether or not you go four days or you go four months. Yeah, uh, I, I think it would help. It also it also scares the crap out of me. Uh, mm, see, now we're getting into the, the sweet spot because now it's oh, getting uncomfortable. It's getting right? real. So what's what's causing you to break a sweat? Uh, just like in, in, in general in life. No, no. I mean, as like, far as I, this idea of like going to a climbing gym, people are expecting me to be there. Uh, is it like a, a good discomfort or like a, no, this definitely is not for me. No, I mean, it's probably a good discomfort. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's this idea of like, if I, yeah, like signing up for a trainer or something is something I've always been like, eh, because then he'll, the, what if I, what if I have something comes up or I don't, it's, it's one more person who's going to have an expectation of me mm. in an already busy life, I, I yeah, guess. Because at the end of the day, that's what it is for you all day, every day. There's a DP, there's an editor, there's a studio executive, there's a co-showrunner, there's Ben Stiller. Everybody's has some expectation. So for you, it just feels like that would be one other person that I now have to meet their expectation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not, I mean, it's, it's not, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, uh, saying my brain is right when it thinks that, but, but that is sort of what my, it's like, Oh, I can't sign up for a class. Then I'll have to go to a class. You know, <laughs> what if you didn't sign up for a class or you didn't schedule with a trainer? You just showed up. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. Uh, it would probably be fun. So if you were to establish the habit of climbing or cycling or some combination of the both, 
It wasn't even something that you did like five, six, seven days a week. But let's just, like you said, you haven't gone hiking in forever. Say that you go one day a week. What effect does that have on your work, on your creativity, on your mood, relationships? How, what's kind of the, the domino effect? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a positive effect. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, you, again, you, you get out of the cycle of where you're always working and and you start to feel, you know, it's like, there's a, there's a, you're filling your tank a little bit too. I mean, it's like, you have to have experiences to write about things and, and you're, you're getting out and you're living life. And so I, I, I think it can only be good. Mm-hmm. And I've, obviously I would agree because that's what I advocate for all the time. The other part that I'm curious about, and I think this is much more common, whether you're at the level that you are or even significantly lower on the totem pole, is you were talking about how you have all these expectations that you want to meet and you're working 24-7 to meet all of them. How much of those do you think are coming from you inside versus whether it's an executive or somebody else on the outside saying, we need you to focus on this 24-7 and make this happen? I think it's kind of a blend of both. For, but from your perspective in your world, your experience doing now your first two seasons of a show, how much of it is it's very clear this is the external expectation versus I could actually go on a date or I could go climbing or whatever, but I put it upon myself to always be available. Yeah, it's interesting. It's 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 some of each. You know, I won't say that it's like it's certainly not all in my head, but there definitely this sense that like it has to always be on your mind is at least somewhat self-imposed. I had it's funny, I had a another person who, you know, came in and and was helping to run the season 2 room with me, a guy named Sam Catlin like said at one point, he he had done multiple seasons of a different show. And he was like, it wasn't until after the second season that I realized I was working harder than I had to. And I was doing these things. And at the time that he said that, I remember sort of being like, no, that's not, it, it's like, there's no way, like everything we're doing is necessary. Like there's, and and it's not self-imposed. It's not something you can just choose to, to walk away from. But I do, I feel like I've slowly been coming to understand what he means in a way where it, where it's like, yeah, but there are simpler ways to get there. And you're not supposed to be thinking about it all the time like like you have to find a way like you will be better and you'll get more done if you find a way to like don't think about every decision you're gonna have to make in the next five days just think about it when it comes and then move on to the next thing and then when you're when you're done for the day be done for the day and uh yeah so so it's a a long answer but but i think to to an extent it's definitely self-imposed and the reason that i bring that up is i in working with so many people in so many different crafts that it's often about the skill of setting boundaries and it's Mm -hmm. hard to set boundaries until you actually going back to what we mentioned earlier have a very clear vision so i just i wanted to create this hypothetical example because i think it's so analogous to what so many people deal with in this industry so hypothetically you're thinking you know what I think I want to build a habit of going climbing. I'm not going to be doing it all day, every day. I'm not going to be bouldering in the mountains, but maybe I want to establish the habit of climbing, let's say once or twice a week. Where do you reach the boundary or the non-negotiable of it's going to be at the expense of these things on the show versus I feel like I should be working, but at the end of the day, I'm kind of creating this false expectation. How would you balance those two where the climbing is good for me and it's a boundary versus it's now compromising what I want to do with the show and my vision? It's a good question. I mean, that's that's something I grapple with for sure. I think that ideally you, you or, or you would hope that the activities would would actually ultimately benefit the the work and and that you're 
by taking care of yourself and, and getting in a good rhythm, you are setting yourself up for more success and that you're going to be more productive during those hours when you are working. So here's so, the flip side of it. Having gone through all of this and being in your mind 24 seven in the show, there's gotta be some value to that given that you're living a lot of the themes that you're talking about. So where does, even though it might not be best for your health or your cholesterol or whatever short term, you're doing a lot of good research to really understand and crawl into the mind of your characters, I would presume. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like method acting, but for writing. <laughs> I love it. That's a great way to put it. Basically, your method writing, uh, method whether you writing. like it or not. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the the last thing that I wanted to go into very very briefly, just because I know that this idea of the the pipeline from staff writer to co EP to EP to showrunner. That line has really been blurred in the industry because of streaming and the proliferation of content. And I know this is a big topic of potential conversation for what hopefully is not going to be a strike, but I know that there's a lot of uh, conversations around this. Uh, so if I were a writer that was on the more non-traditional path and I'm about to potentially sell a show where I may end up in a position similar to you, Granted, you haven't been doing it for 20 years, but you've now been through the ringer. What are some of the the pieces of advice you would give me and things that I don't know that I don't know that you now know? Oh, man, that's it's uh, a really good question. It's it's hard to not just say everything because, I mean, for me, it really it truly was. And I, and I think I have an unusual trajectory here where, where I really did go from like zero to 100. Again, I had never been in a writer's room, so I wasn't sure, you know, the degree to which I should try to run the conversation. It's like, should I come in and already have some ideas fleshed out and let people sort of pitch on that? Or it's like, are people going to be offended if I do that? Like, like, are the other writers going to think that, you know, do, do they want to just generate it conversationally? And I think what I was lucky to learn is, is that a lot of it can be what you make it. Like, it's not like you, you may be told that's like, this is how a writer's room works. But it's like, I was lucky enough to be in a position where it was like, I was encouraged to like figure out what works for you and then just do that. And 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 we will support you in that. And so for me, like in that, in that season one room, like there was a lot of time, it's like, I would, you know, we would meet for a couple hours and then I'd say like, I need some time in my office. I just need to sit and think for a while. And, you know, I, I learned at a certain point, like people aren't going to be mad if I ask that, like, because I'm the one who has to get this done, ultimately, I can tell people what is best for me in terms of process. So yeah, not, not being too afraid to to mess up. I mean, that that's, I guess, is what it comes down to, like, no, knowing that the people around you are not waiting for you to screw up. They're, they're just there to help. And they, and they are on your, your team and on your side. And it's not like that nightmare where you're taking a test and don't know any of the answers. It's, it's like you have the people around you and they have the answers and, and it's okay to ask them and it's okay to tell them what you need and let them use their expertise to help you get there. Failure is a core component in a mindset that I teach all the time where I believe failure is the fastest path to success versus we have to avoid failure at all costs and we need to yeah. portray success at all times. It goes back to this idea of one of the reasons you've been able to maintain a consistent vision. You're okay if other people around you have the best ideas and have answers to the questions that you don't. I think that's such a core part of being a leader, being a creator and all the the other things that we've talked about. So one last thing to wrap it up. Talked about giving advice to a potential writer, showrunner that's going to be in a similar position as you. One last person I want to give advice to. It's an exercise I don't do with all of my guests, but I'm curious uh, what your answer might be. You're going to become a time traveler 
And we're going to time travel back to whatever the moment was you were the most convinced this was never going to happen. Knowing what you know now, you're going to sit down and you're going to give yourself a little chat. What are you going to to give yourself uh, as far as some advice? Okay. So I'm I'm speaking now to to Dan circa the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dan, listen, I know you've spent the last, you know, three years getting this thing ready. And at every stage, you keep thinking, oh, something's going to fall through and it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And then you had finally gotten to the point where it's like, oh, my God, this is actually going to happen. I know you just had a table read. Patricia Arquette was there. John Turturro was there. It was huge. It was this big thing. And then all of a sudden, you got news that we were shutting down because of this pandemic and and we have to shut down and we don't know when we're coming back. Now, I know that you think that the universe is screwing with you right now and that it's like, oh my God, it was finally about to happen. And then the only thing that could have possibly stopped it happened. But the universe is not against you. The COVID pandemic, in fact, is not about you. It's something that everybody has to deal with. And and in fact, this is just one more hurdle and it's actually going to be good. Not not on any level, the COVID is good is what I'm saying. But in terms of the show, you are going to now actually get much more time to write the season and hone it. And you're going to use that time to make it the best it can possibly be. And it's still going to happen. And it's going to be really good. And you're going to meet Michael Keaton at an awards show. And it's going to be really cool. And he's going to say he likes the show. So this looks like a cosmic joke that's going to kill your show. But it's not. It's going to make you stronger. You're going to be okay. That is by far the best answer I have ever gotten to that question. Oh my God, that was so good. The level of detail, like the performance, the vision. Usually people get some really good advice and then sometimes they emotionally go there. The fact that you acted it out and pictured yourself in this scenario with a level of detail. Now I understand why you are the storyteller that you are, because that was great. Can I also say, stop trimming your own beard. Go to a barber and have them trim your beard because they know how to do it and you don't know how to do it and you look you look ridiculous. That's the other, <laughs> the last thing. I mean. what, a, what a great way to cap it. I can see so much of your personality in the show now. It, it, it's all come together and made so much more sense to me. Right. I could probably go for at least another three, four hours. However, I am going to be respectful of your time. And I just want to close by saying, in my mind, this episode and this conversation has been months and months and months and months in the making. It was totally worth the wait. And you not only met, but exceeded my expectations. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. And for anybody that's out there that wants to learn learn more about you beyond severance that might want to connect with you. Can they do that? And if so, how? They can look me up on the, the Instagram. I'm at instadan360. That's me. That's probably the best way. Again, I can't thank you enough. This has meant the world to me and really appreciate you taking the time to share your experience, your expertise, and just help us all better understand how to manage this crazy journey that we call life. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well.
One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.